The reading this morning is from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Faith and deeds. What good is it, brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is a God? Good! Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so too is faith without deeds. This is the word of the Lord. For those of you who've arrived since we began, good morning. I'm Sam, one of the staff team, and it's great to be here with you all. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Please help each of us to hear what your spirit is saying. Help me as I speak to lift high the name of Jesus, and would you transform us together increasingly into his likeness. Amen. Today is part three in our series, Themes from James. Our theme, winsome ways, faith in action. But you've heard the reading, and I think that's a rather positive spin on James's tone here. The message he repeats three times is that faith without deeds is dead. He doesn't pull any punches, does he? James' letter is a cross between Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and the book of Proverbs, chunks of challenging Jesus-flavoured wisdom. And this chunk is all about the kind of faith that saves. We're going to go through the passage in three parts, exploring what James has to say about this contentious and often misunderstood relationship between faith and works. Where do you see the onus lying Perhaps even already you're kind of leaning one way or the other 
And that'll depend on your reading of scripture, your upbringing, or the churches we've been a part of. But this morning, our first and overarching point is that faith without deeds is dead. Faith without deeds is dead. James is explicit in verse 17. Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Um, Now, I just realised that I meant to, before I launched in, I meant to say it's hot. So if you are, um, you know, if you're struggling with that, if you don't have any water, there's water and glasses on the back there and feel very free to get up, wander over. Or if you even need some fresh air, then please um, just make yourselves, make yourselves comfortable, look after yourselves. Great. So point one, faith by itself uh, without deeds is dead. James begins by asking us, his brothers and sisters in Jesus, what good is it if someone claims to have faith Uh, So claims to have faith, but has no deeds. Can that faith save them? It's an uncomfortable question for our soft Western Protestant ears. We know that we're saved by faith and faith alone. We could go to any number of passages in Ephesians, Romans, Galatians. We're descendants of the Reformation, dubious of anything that smells at all like works. We don't want to fall into legalism. And that's good. In fact, that's James's message in this same chapter, just a few verses before, that trying to fulfill the law is useless because even if we break one tiny little bit, we're guilty of breaking the whole thing. And he concludes the previous section, mercy triumphs over judgment. He's saying the law of Jesus Christ, the new covenant, it brings freedom, but it's no good just knowing this law that brings freedom. We need to live it. Another way of asking his question might be, if someone claims to have received God's mercy, but has no evidence of showing any mercy themselves, will that wash? And James' very blunt to the point answer is no. No, it won't. And that's nothing new or controversial. We see it throughout the New Testament. Jesus taught the same message over and over. Just one example, his explanation of the prayer he taught his disciples. He says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Now, grace and mercy originates with God and comes to us, but how we live, how we respond, what we do with God's mercy matters. Likewise, John the Baptist urges the Pharisees and Sadducees, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And Paul summarizes his message like this. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That language of demonstrating repentance through deeds is similar to James' argument in verse 18 that, you know, how can we show our faith apart from our deeds? Well, we can't. We've nothing to show. If we really believe, if we've repented, if we've experienced God's mercy, our hearts will have been changed. And James exhorts us to let our lives bear witness to God's work in us. And then we've got James Clincher, 
that even the demons have an orthodox view of God. Now, angels and demons are a sermon series for another time. But for this morning, note that James believes in demons and these demons believe in the one God. So do you. Great, says James. They at least have the integrity of putting their faith, their belief into action and shuddering. James uses as his illustration the scenario where one believer encounters another with nothing to wear, nothing to eat. At this point, James says, you can have all the doctrine you want. You might have PhDs coming out of your ears. You might be as orthodox as they come. You might show unparalleled faith in the kind and gracious provision of our Heavenly Father. As you say to that brother or sister, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed. Shorthand, take care, God bless. But if on encountering that poverty-stricken brother or sister, we show no kindness, no compassion, no mercy, what does that reveal about our faith? Legend has it that in the fourth century AD, Martin of Tours entered a poor beggar as he approached the city of Amiens. It was the depth of the winter and the beggar was wearing only a few rags. Rather than wishing this fellow well and continuing on his way, he stopped, drew his sword and cut his cloak in two. That night, Martin had a dream of Jesus appearing to him wearing the half of his cloak he'd given away, saying, what thou hast done for that poor man, thou hast done for me. Now, I believe Martin of Tours then gave up his life uh, as a soldier and devoted the rest of his life to the church. But you can look that up. And if you ever look at the painting in the chapel and wonder what's going on, as I often have, I believe it's this scene that's being depicted. It all starts with mercy, doesn't it? We were in dire straits. We were in desperate need of help before Christ saved us. And in the same way, we're called to extend that mercy to those around us. What if rather than wishing our brother or sister well, we became part of the answer to their prayers? It might be as simple as offering a glass of water and a sandwich to our brother or sister in need. All the more so in this heat, perhaps carrying a, a spare bottle of water on our journey could be one way of uh, loving those in need uh, in case they're caught out. Or a bit like St. Martin, it might involve giving away one of our several beloved jackets to keep someone warm on a cold winter's night. As lovely a thought as that is at the moment. Perhaps faith in action looks like taking the time to understand the bigger picture, something of the complexity of the situation and doing something about it on a societal level. Jesus expected our belief, our faith, to have practical outworkings in our life. And James reminds us that faith, if not accompanied by action, is no faith at all. So having made the point that faith without action is dead, James offers us an example, Abraham. And point two is this, Abraham saved by deeds. Now, okay, I'm being a little provocative, a little contentious, taking a leaf out of James' book, if you will. What does he say? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Now, note on the language, in case that's unfamiliar. James describes 
Abraham and Rahab as considered righteous. And that's basically Old Testament language for being saved, being made right with God, reconciled to him, our sin no longer in the way. James presents us with God's friend Abraham as a witness to his case. Abraham, the patriarch, Abraham, the hero of the faith. The same Abraham that Paul uses in Romans to make the case that we're saved by faith alone. So what's going on here? Well, the two are making entirely different points. On the one hand, Paul's arguing that it's not through the law that we're saved, but by faith in Jesus. And James is arguing that the kind of faith that saves us is the kind of faith that necessarily bears fruit in our lives. Abraham's believing God, his faith, was displayed, made complete through his obedience. It's not either faith or deeds, it's both and. Faith comes first, deeds follow right behind, working together and completing one another. Not a competition, but a partnership. Look at a couple of those that Jesus met. The Samaritan woman at the well. We're told many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Zacchaeus stands up and says, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. These two characters couldn't just sit back on their faith as an insurance policy. They couldn't help but take action. Zacchaeus emptying his pockets and the Samaritan woman sharing generously the saviour that she'd encountered at the well. Don't fall into the trap of thinking, I believe the right things. I know who God is. I'm a Christian. I'm safe. Taking action can wait. But faith by itself isn't a golden ticket, an eternal insurance policy. It's an opportunity to allow God to bear fruit in our lives, an opportunity to take him at his word and begin to see what he has in store for us. And in my experience, as we step out in faith, we give God room to work and to move and for us to see his work in our lives. And that in turn encourages our faith, which helps us step again. We want to live lives like Abraham's with our actions, our obedience, partnering our faith. And our third and final point is that even Rahab was saved by her works. Rahab, saved by deeds. To really nail the point home, James invites a second incontrovertible witness to the box. Maybe he thought using Abraham was a bit cliched, a bit too much like Paul, or not strong enough to really emphasise how far-reaching and life-saving works are. So this time he looks to Rahab. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did? Rahab, the prostitute. This woman is the polar opposite of Abraham. And you'll read about her bravery in Joshua chapter 2. She's a woman, a Gentile, a foreigner, not one of God's chosen people. And to really make matters worse, she's a prostitute, not just an amateur sinner, but a professional one. In Rahab's day, according to Jewish law and custom, this woman could not have been further from God. She was the outsider of all outsiders. 
But here's the surprise, Rahab made it in. Check out Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Even Rahab, the prostitute, was considered righteous because she believed. No, because she put her faith into action. She took a huge risk and aided the Israelite spies. She put her life on the line. And as a result, her life was spared. She did the brave thing of switching allegiance to the God of Israel, even though it meant dying to her city. Growing up, there were a couple of books that I loved to read. One was Run, Baby, Run, and the other, The Cross and the Switchblade. The same story told from two different points of view. One, that of the hillbilly preacher who had felt called to sort of inner city New York to minister to the gangs. And the other, a guy called Nicky Cruz, son of a satanic priest, a mother who practiced black magic, a violent president of a gang called the Mau Maus. The preacher came to town and told Cruz that Jesus loved him and would never stop loving him. And Cruz responded by slapping Wilkerson and threatening to kill him. Wilkerson attempted again uh, at a later date and received the same response. Later still, at an evangelistic meeting in the neighbourhood, Wilkerson gave an altar call and a large number of gang members responded. Wilkerson prayed with Cruz and Cruz asked God to forgive him. Now I love this particular story that afterwards Cruz and some of the gang members who were converted went to the police and turned in all of their bricks and handguns and knives, shocking the police officers in the station. Apparently if they'd seen the group approaching they'd have shot them down. Cruz began to study the Bible, went to Bible college. He became a preacher, returned to his old neighbourhood where he preached and converted more of the Mau Maus to Christianity, including their new leader. James might ask, wasn't Nicky Cruz, the violent Harlem gang leader, considered righteous for what he did? Seeing Nicky's faith put into action leaves you in no doubt as to the sincerity of his conversion. He began to work for the ministry of the preacher, David Wilkerson, and went on to found uh, his own evangelistic outreach ministry. If even Rahab was considered righteous for what she did, there's hope for everyone, says James. No one's discounted, no one's disqualified. Everyone's invited to have faith, to repent and to put that faith into action. We're all able to display living, vital faith through our deeds of kindness and mercy. Like Rahab, when the Israelites came and knocked on her door, we have an opportunity to switch allegiance from the world around us with its pressures and expectations to the Lord Jesus Christ, whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light, and who has good works prepared for each one of us uniquely to do. As Martin Luther helpfully put it, we are saved by faith alone, but that faith that saves is never alone. And I think that's helpful for summing up the the nuance of this matter, that we are saved by faith alone. It comes, it's a gift from God that that we're saved, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by work, by by love, by mercy, as we 
act out of response to his grace and kindness to us. So as we go into uh, the week, let that be an encouragement to let your faith shine, to look after those around you, brothers and sisters and those in need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for James's challenging words and for speaking to us this morning by your Spirit. We pray, Lord, that in this place, in this church, faith would abound, would grow, would deepen, and we pray that it would be completed by, that it would be partnered with our actions, our deeds, as we take steps of obedience to love you and to love our neighbour, to let our love for one another be the sign, the, uh, the, the demonstration of our love for you. Father, forgive us for where we're selfish or um, slow to act, slow to love. And we pray that as we consider Christ and his mercy on us, that we would be inspired this week uh, in gratitude to, to live uh, as he did. In Jesus' name, amen.